millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. It's a hostile environment here. We're talking about the Windrush generation and PMQs. So, Stephen, you've returned fresh from the House of Commons, in which the two debating champions, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, have been slugging out over the week's big route. Just to recap, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this is what you've written your column on this week, a generation of people who are now, you say most of them, either at retirement age or around retirement age, yeah. who came over from the Caribbean predominantly as children on Empire Windrush ship. They had landing cards when they got here, and they were at the time British subjects. So there is a 1971 act that says they've got permanent leave yeah. to remain and live in Britain. Nonetheless, because of the hostile environment policy brought in by Theresa May at the Home Office, Far more services have been asking people for their immigration records and their proof of entitlement to live in the country. And some of these people have not been able to find that and have therefore been facing deportation, facing not being able to use NHS services. Yeah. So the hostile environment came in in a a kind of watered down kind of to get past George Osborne at the Treasury and the Liberal Democrats in 2014. And then after the Conservatives won a majority and Theresa May became Prime Minister, with the Treasury, yeah, a hugely diminished force immediately after the Brexit result and the loss of their very powerful Chancellor, with the Lib Dems, of course, not in government at all, she was then able to kind of bring in an even more souped-up version of that. Now, in both 2014 and 2016, the British West Indian press and various advocacy groups did say, uh, look, what about the people who came here as British citizens who've had their rights grandfathered in? How are they meant to prove anything under the hostile environment stuff? Now, two things have happened which have brought that into the public eye. The first is the very impressive sort of campaigning journalism being done by Amelia Gentleman at The Guardian. The second, and the kind of reason why there's now this broader trend, is because the point of the hostile environment is basically co-ops large chunks of the state, civil society, public sector, into the border force. If you are someone who has lived here for 60 years and you've worked... Um, in the same job for a long period of time. Obviously, the number of fresh encounters you have with the state is actually quite limited. But you retire, or you suddenly, if you live in social housing and you go, well, I now live in a social housing designed for my family, I'd actually really like to be able to move somewhere with only one floor. You suddenly come into contact with the state again. And that is why these families are being caught in the net now. That is the underlying cause of the 
problem. I think it's quite interesting that, I mean, you and I have talked this about, because today uh, that we're recording this, Wednesday, is exactly a year since Theresa May called her snap election. And we talked at the time, a lot last year, about, you know, is Theresa May good or lucky? I think the consensus now is that up until the snap election, she was extremely, extremely lucky. But the one thing that we did keep talking about is how the Home Office has kind of proved a kind of cropper for so many politicians that came out of there and she'd kind of dodged that curse possibly because of the spinning off of the Ministry of Justice. But this is evidence of the fact that it is a difficult ministry to come from in order to be Prime Minister because you have there are the possibilities while you haven't made a load of colossal cock ups are, are high. But the thing is this isn't a colossal cock up. This oh, is... I mean destroying the landing cars, not the hostile environment yeah. policy, which I take your point is that is is entirely acting in the way that it was supposed to. Yeah, so the the thing with the landing cars is there was an interesting back and forth today because Jeremy Corbyn stood up, made a point about, yeah, why did you destroy the landing out? She said something which is, as we were arriving in the podcast, has started to unravel a bit, which she went, it was a Labour government which did it. it. Actually, it turns out it wasn't. It was the UK Border Agency, which is, yes, okay, it's run by the Home Office, but you can no, no more say, oh, it was a Labour government than did it, than you can claim that Jason Cowley ordered a not very nice chicken meal when I was taking out a minister for lunch last week, right? Yeah, the the, the level of devolved response, you know, the level of decision making is not um is is not yeah. There's not a direct chain of it, command where yeah. someone's signed a piece of paper saying I authorize this to happen. Yeah, and also crucially, the problems with doing that in 2009 were, uh, well, I think one revealing of a Home Office mentality which didn't didn't and doesn't see a large chunk of people who use its services as people that was a very valuable historical and cultural uh, resource. People... I think that's really, I think that's something, I saw a tweet this week that said, in the same way that people only began to kind of really see that actually the police were often very brutal towards protesters when kind of middle-class white students started getting hit with truncheons during the student protests a couple of years ago, this is now kind of only coming to light. Whereas, and you know, we've been reporting on this stuff for a long time about, particularly about deportations, you know, I think about um, the case of Jimmy Mbenga, for example, you know, that, you know, the way that deportations happen is incredibly brutal and inhumane and has been. The detention in Yarlswood, which Diane Abbott was the first Shadow Home Secretary to visit uh, about a month ago, you know, those people are kept in really unpleasant conditions in the middle of nowhere in a big warehouse, right? We have got an immigration system that is deliberately punitive and unpleasant, and it's just that it hasn't affected enough people who've got sharp elbows and access to broadsheet, you know, columns that we haven't really kind of been had to confront it before. And who command huge amounts of public sympathy and support. I mean, in terms of, you know, kind of both what we've done on the website and in the magazine in the past, but also in terms of your kind of a other life when you used to be the chair of a charity, the the first group of people to be massively caught in the hostile environment were people seeking to exit I don't want to say sex work because if you've been trafficked, you want that is not work by any definition and any. Exploited into prostitution, leftist, I think, is the one where we kind of uh, uh, say on that one. Yeah. Um, but um, where was there was this problem where you'd say, well, the hostile environment policy means then these women can't exit. Yeah. Uh, this inter- and people go, oh, but, and basically there was an idea that they deserved it. And the same thing with um, women caught with um, violent and abusive partners who wanted to leave. There was a kind of thing, P.S., can you also dob him into the Home Office if he's here illegally? And you have to try and make that distinction as a charity to say, our job here is to support people and we can only do that if we've got trust. It's hard enough to get people to, you know, 
into into accommodation and also psychologically to leave someone who's been controlling them possibly over many years possibly both with violence and through money and actually being drafted in as a kind of arm of the state in completely jeopardizes that relationship but i mean other people were drafted since when landlords were a big part of hostile environments still are um schools were being asked to kind of collect you know information on their pupils all of these things that make people much more reluctant to engage with the state i saw sam friedman of teach first who i think is also a school governor saying well actually it makes parents much less likely to want to be engaged with the school it's just making groups of people very suspicious of officialdom because they don't they they feel tense and they feel at some point they're going to get found out even people who are here legally feel very like this is a a kind of a very authoritarian state that does not have their best interests at heart well this is the thing if you actually look at the requirements placed under you under the hostile environment they are requirements that Bluntly, I, someone who have lived here all my life, whose parents were born here, whose granddad was born here, whose grandmother is a white South African, so was still, you know, is still notionally within that protective orbit. I would struggle, were it not for the fact that my grandparents are also middle class and therefore crucially have passports, I would struggle to immediately be able to prove that that line of causation. So for most people, right, the hostile environment demands are at the least the kind of thing where you look at it and go oh god i couldn't possibly meet that even if that's not true so yeah as so all of these things are bureaucratic nightmares when we tried to get a mortgage last year the um this is a kind of ridiculousness situation you get into because of the money laundering legislation which is a separate thing they want six months worth of printed bank statements except we went to our bank who said we don't print bank statements anymore and you go but but legally i need them and they go but we don't print them anymore and we had to eventually sweet talk someone into doing it and i think this is something that if you're middle class it's very easy to forget how you know difficult it is British bureaucracy is to engage with right I saw someone tweeting about the fact that almost nobody who um who has ever seen a benefits claim form for example you know you would just see that and just think this is some of this is absolutely boggling like I don't know if you get this I get as soon as I have to fill in any kind of official form I become incredibly tense at the idea I might get it wrong yeah but trying to do that when the threat is either of you being deported or the threat is of you losing your benefits must be incredible. I mean, that just takes up a huge, saps a huge amount of time and mental energy. Yeah, and the um, and this is the thing. Then, so obviously there has been some incompetence. The right wing press is is very keen to turn this into a story of of incompetence because Amber Rudd, the Home Secretary, is seen as the most likely standard bearer for the left of the Conservative Party. But actually, this is not about incompetence. It is about a deliberate policy of making it really hard to engage with government bureaucracy, partly as a cost-cutting measure, right? If it's unpleasant to try and claim your benefits, you won't, basically. People will, will just go, okay, do you know what? I'll just work cash in hand. I'll just work cash in yeah. hand up. If it is impossible, if you have a kind of appeal first, sort of deport now, appeal late first. Yeah, deport no. now, appeal later. Sorry thank goodness you rescued me there god knows how many tries i would have had to go to get that one right then you are for obvious reasons going to decrease the number of unsuccessful um deportation attempts you you make as a government i mean we we shouldn't be um at all blind to that as a direct consequence of this there will be people who will be frail some of whom will you know because this is the nature of, of growing old for some people will uh, be slightly confused about who they are and where they are, who will already have been deported, who will not necessarily, because of the point of their lives, and they have got to be very easily able to go to the um, British, oh, what is it called when you're in the Commonwealth? I should know this, the High Commission. 
will not exactly be able to go up to the High Commission and go, oh, by the way, I've been deported by mistake, because they were confused about where they were when they were in the country they had grown up in and lived in for 60 years, which is why they went to a doctor in the first place. Yeah, and one of the, some of the things that people dug out were, and this is not new, it's been around for a couple of years, is the, the kind of advice about what happens if you're um, taken back to Jamaica after not having lived there. And it says, you know, foreigners may attract attention. So, like, try to blend in by kind of using Jamaican words, sounding Jamaican. And you think, well, if you haven't lived there for 50 years... You putting on a kind of cod Jamaican accent is probably not the thing that's going to really sort this all out for you. Yeah. Oh, but Stephen, what's actually going to happen? This is the big question because a lot of, you know, because one of the things, and I, I originally in my column this week kind of wanted to do a kind of what does this say about politics today, but I very quickly realised and this would be a much longer piece than the 1,000-word uh, rubric because I think one of the neglected subplots is a bunch of, um, you know, kind of, sort of fairly right on Tories, you know, like your Tom Tugendhat's, your Johnny Mercer's tweeting, oh, this is awful, something must be done. And it's just like, mate, you voted for this? You voted for the hostile environment policy in 2016. Um, or, yeah, in an unrelated issue, James Cleverly going, lol, lol, why is Labour treating the under-25s like they uh, have us money? So, again, James, you voted for a, for a minimum wage policy that created this second tier of underpaid... And that they shouldn't get housing benefit, you yeah, know, despite just, working. Yeah, uh, And, uh, you know, this is not a new problem, but it has definitely become more acute of MPs who quite clearly do not understand the implications of the uh, laws they are voting on. And the one thing... But they also don't understand that this is the Tory bruise, right? This mm. is the thing that... This is what people are primed to think about the Tories. They might think they're ruthlessly efficient. They might think they're good at controlling the finances. But a lot of that stems from the fact they believe that they are fundamentally not a soft touch which slides into cruel, right? So the one thing you don't want to go is lazy young people. or Because what you're doing really is... You know, you'll get some cheers, but you're also further alienating people by confirming what they already thought about you. Yeah, I mean, it does kind of punch the Tory bruise of, of enjoying cruelty. But it's like, um, I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn was sort of just standing there at the dispatchbox waving 50s and kind of throwing them around, that would be a bad thing for Jeremy Corbyn as Labour leader to do. I mean, not for the front bench, they'd probably enjoy that, but yeah. If I, if I were really loaded and or making like one of those terrible candid video comedies, I think, you know, you, I'm always intrigued to know, you know what would happen if you threw like a 50 into a crowd of, say, MPs. I feel whatever happened. I mean, from a public relations <laughs> perspective, filmable. I feel quite tense on their behalf. Right, imagine you're the cabinet, right, and someone chucks a 50 into the US. I mean, if you if you just look at it disinterestedly, you look out of touch because you're someone who walks past a fifty pounds. If you scrabble for if you're it, thirsty. I mean, you know, you you earn in excess of a hundred grand. You're in the cabinet. Maybe you shouldn't be scrabbling around for fifty. There is no safe thing to do if a fifty pound is thrown at you. But if anyone would like to donate a fifty pound note, um, I volunteer to send Stephen to the next Conservative Party conference, get as close to the cabinet as possible, and I think you'd have to turn it into like a paper aeroplane. Otherwise, it would too obviously land near one of them. Yeah, it's true. You would have to find some delivery mechanism to make the the person whose fifty pound it was it feel slightly more um, unlikely. What if you did it with a pound coin? What if you taped a sell like? What if you stuck a pound coin to the floor in Tory party conference on the route that all the ministers have to walk to give their speeches? That Who would, would bend to pick up that pound coin? That would be good banter. But anyway, the the, the crucial thing here is is that it is really difficult to work out what a workaround for the hostile environment policy is for the Windrush generation, that leaves the rest of their flagship policy intact. My guess is, is what they will end up with is some kind of, we will lower the evidential basis to anyone who has been 
known to HMRC for a period of time, yeah, for a continuous decade at any point since 1945. So they'll just punch a kind of small hole in it. And then they will... They could just basically effectively say, turn down the requirements for anyone over 60. But the I mean, prob- you can't do that officially, but... But the problem is you can't turn down the requirements for anyone over 60 because how do you prove someone is over 60 and then you're back into this this is kind of the yeah this is why you can't separate this problem and in some ways for the government i think this is really only the beginning of their problems with the hostile environment the next cohort of immigrants who have done the right thing worked all their life and are going to retire are ugandan asians who similarly came here as refugees and had guarantees about their status made by the heath government now for various demographic reasons it will be slightly easier, I think, for that cohort of migrants to to meet the hostile uh, environment test. However, not all of them will, and it once again gets them into this same problem. And seeing as you can't, you know, the whole point of the hostile environment is you can't have a thing where you go, anyone who looks a bit wizened and dark, prob's okay. Um, so... Sort of the opposite of the kind of worries about child refugees not actually being children. It'd be like, what if they're just putting their hair up in buns and affecting a love of love joy? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And now a special treat for you. Mehdi Hassan is the former senior politics editor of The New Statesman and now a contributing editor to the magazine based out in Washington, D.C. He's also the host of a new weekly podcast called Deconstructed, which features guests like Senator Bernie Sanders. You can subscribe at theintercept.com forward slash podcasts forward slash deconstructed. Mehdi, hello. Hello, Helen. How are you? I'm fine. It feels a bit like getting the old band back together from uh, the the glory days when you were over in, in London. Where we used to sit across the table and complain about an incompetent conservative government. Now it's just we've lost the table. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you're in Washington, D.C. now. So I, I'm really interested. You've been writing us a series of columns from there. And there is a kind of strange problem with covering American politics at the moment that just so much has happened and, and, and so many scandals, each one of which would have been a massive deal in the Obama era, just come like every six hours. You know, What's it like trying to cover that? You're right. It's the endless scandal and controversy and craziness that kind of wears you down. And you guys right now in the UK are dealing with this Windrush scandal, a good old fashioned home office uh, controversy. And you just imagine the Windrush scandal times 10 every hour of every day of every week. That is what covering Donald Trump is like in Washington, D.C. right now. You talk about an Obama-era scandal. These are the kind of scandals that would bring down any modern U.S. president. And yet there's loads of them. You you literally can't keep track of them. You can't cover them. Somebody asked me the other day, how does the U.S. media do in terms of its coverage of Trump? And I'm very critical of the U.S. media for many reasons, Helen. But one thing you've got to feel sorry for American journalists about is... How do you cover so many stories on a daily basis? It's just not physically possible. I think it's fascinating. I mean, I was, every so often you see a tweet that references some Obama-era scandal. Like, you know, when he wore a tan suit or yes. he didn't wear yes. a 
Was it presidential? He he, uh, he leaned over like a sandwich counter over the the shield that was supposed to stop you sneezing on the sandwiches. That was my favourite one. You're like, right, okay, so we're up against that versus a guy who may or may not have paid hush money to a lawyer to pay off a porn star, and also. I mean, if you, you take know. if you take even a, I mean, you take it's, you take even one of them. Just think of the last ten days, two weeks. You have uh, two adult film stars uh, accusing the president of sleeping with them and then trying to pay them off. You have the president's lawyer having his office, his personal lawyer having his office raided by the feds. You have the ongoing Russia investigation. You have um, a doorman at Trump Tower paid off, allegedly, he says, because he knows about a Trump love child. You have. What? Wait, a, wait, 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 hang on. I missed that one. I completely missed that one. How did you miss that, that one? one? How did you miss that one? The National Enquirer, Trump's pals at the National Enquirer, bought a story from a doorman at Trump Tower who was fired, he says, because he knew that Trump had a love child with one of his housekeepers in the 80s. Um, Now, the story may be complete BS, but the point of the story is yet another example of someone being allegedly paid off uh, by Trump or Trump associates to shut their mouths about an alleged Trump affair. You have a Trump tenant in Trump Tower dying, Helen. Somebody died in Trump Tower. Imagine if an Obama or Clinton tenant had died while they were in the White House. It would be the subject of every conspiracy theory in the world uh, by Breitbart, by Fox, by Infowars. And this has all just happened in the last couple of weeks. And that's not including his actual administration. Don't even get me started on Scott (laughs) Pruitt, his Environment Protection Agency chief who buys things like bulletproof desks and orders his security detail to run through traffic lights so he can get to a restaurant on time for dinner. I mean, it's just, you don't know where to start. You don't know where to begin. This, uh, you know, this week, Trump's tweets are just as crazy as ever. Uh, Wednesday morning, I woke up, saw him claiming that he never fired Comey over Russia, even though I watched him say on NBC News last year, I fired him because of Russia. And it's just tiring, Helen. It's really, I mean, as much, as interesting as it is to be a journalist in the Trump era, it is so physically, mentally, emotionally exhausting. That's the thing I'm interested in, right? So how do you deal with something like, uh, you know, the North Korean situation, which is very serious, or trying to hmm. kind of unpick what's happening uh, with his, you know, what's his long term, no, does he have a long term strategy for Syria? I sort of suspect not. But trying to kind of... <laughs> Ignore all the kind of media war that's kind of going on constantly over the top to try and focus on actions and actual policies. Is that even possible? It is possible. And some excellent journalists at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, you saw the Pulitzer Prizes going out this week to some excellent uh, reporters are doing it, are doing the hard work of uh, finding out where budget cuts are coming, uh, where who's benefiting from the tax cuts, what's happening at the Environmental Protection Agency, apart from Scott Pruitt's corruption, i.e., climate change stuff, rolling back regulation. There is important work being done, but how do you have the bandwidth to absorb it? I, as a journalist, cannot read all this stuff, cannot be across all this stuff. You weren't aware of that hilarious other scandal involving the doorman. If we can't be across all of this stuff, how can you expect the average voter who's getting ready to vote in the midterms in 2018, later this year, to be across even 10% of this stuff? I mean, I have to, I wake up in the morning now, my daily routine is, you know, uh, you know, shower, shit, shave and check Trump's Twitter feed. I mean, seriously, that you, you can't, that's how you start your day. It's so depressing. And, and whatever great plans you may have had to write an important piece about Syria policy or about, uh, you know, what's happening on climate change or about, you know, the tax bill or, you know, healthcare, all these important issues where Trump is basically screwing over the American public and the global public. You get distracted, you get diverted. And some people, I know some people on the left get very upset and say, why are you looking at all this superficial stuff? Focus on the big picture, focus on policy and, uh, you know, foreign policy. And, And I try to, anyone who reads my stuff knows I try to, but it's hard not to pay attention to an adult film star who says, 
she was paid off by the president's personal lawyer and then got threatened in a car park by an unnamed man who told her to forget about Trump. I think my favourite moment of the week was the history professor. Actually, it was Alan Dershowitz on on Fox News giving um, Sean Hannity a bollocking for not disclosing that he had also had some sort of relationship with Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer. I forgot about that. Let's not even get started on the whole Fox. (laughs) Hannity, you know, here you have a Fox News host who has spent the last year and a half boosting Trump, attacking Bob Mueller, the FBI, the Russia investigation. Turns out he's using the same lawyer as the president who was just had his offices raided and didn't feel the need to tell anyone. Again, imagine if a MSNBC Obama supporter had been using Obama's personal lawyer while attacking the feds, investigating Obama and his personal lawyer. Imagine the reaction. I mean, I find myself, Helen, I don't know about you, on an almost daily basis composing a tweet saying, imagine if Obama, imagine Mm. if Clinton, and then I just delete it because it's pointless. I know, but it does make it does make me really angry, particularly looking back on that Clinton campaign and 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 actually on Obama's term as well. Just the kind of just the endless latitude that gets extended to Trump as a Republican, as a very wealthy white guy. It's it's it is the starkest example of injustice. It is injustice, and it's worse than that. It's not just as a Republican or a white guy. I genuinely believe nobody else could get away with what Trump gets away. The only thing that keeps me sane is the thought that I don't think another presidential candidate in the future can do what Trump did. I think he's definitely lowered the bar in terms of coarseness, dishonesty, corruption, nepotism, and you know those are lo- that's long term damage to the republic, to the U.S. Constitution and political norms. No doubt about that. But just the daily break and craziness and dishonesty. I don't think anyone else could have got away with it like he did during the campaign or can get away with it in office in the way that he does. I don't think Ted Cruz could say the kind of lies that Trump says or appoint his daughter to go and, you know, basically act as Secretary of State at Latin American conferences in the same way that Trump does. And I think Trump has this unique ability to, A, lower the bar for himself so he's graded on a curve, but also beat all of us into submission with the sheer quantity of his lies and controversies so that we basically, whether we like it or not, we normalize it. I do, as much as I loathe him, as much as I'm outraged by you know soft media coverage, I do it myself. Th- certain things he did that were outrageous a while ago, I no longer comment on because I can't. There are things he says on a daily basis which I don't comment on. I don't tweet, I don't write about, I don't even get angry about because it's just, okay, it's Donald Trump. And yeah. I know I shouldn't, but how, how else do you cope with the sheer quantity? You know, he tells uh, Daniel Dale of the Toronto star whoever people should follow him if they're interested in following donald trump i mean he he documents all of trump's lies it's an amazing public service for humanity that he does and he was tweeting the other day for example about how you know trump tells this thing about hillary clinton um uh, acid washed her emails you ever heard him say he says clinton acid washed her emails which doesn't make any sense and you think what does that even mean apparently hillary used a bit of software called bleach bit to delete her emails from her server Trump heard that and started saying she bleached her emails, and that then became she acid-washed her emails. A bizarre, pointless, illogical lie, but something, you know, as Daniel Dale points out, but we're not going to spend time on it. If Obama had said it, it would be the biggest story in the world. What a weird made-up lie. With Trump, it's like, okay, that's like number 17 on the list of important lies we need to cover of his. Yeah, and if Obama had used like two exclamation marks in a tweet, we'd have all been going, what's going on at the White House? This is, yeah, oh, but, yeah. Now, but now he can just write sad at the end here. Or- so what do we do? What's the solution? Because I don't think the US media has a solution. You're in the UK. From afar, do you have a solution? Well, I think you mentioning Daniel Dale is interesting because one of the reasons that I followed him for a long time, and as you say, he works for Toronto Star, right? So he's a Canadian covering um, the White House. And I think it's really important to cover this stuff as if you would if it were in the developing world. 
Yeah. Actually, Stephen Bush wrote a piece for us about how you would cover the Garden Bridge and Boris Johnson's actions over that if he were, you know, the Interior Minister, say, of like Uganda yeah. or somewhere like that. And the, and the way that this is actually a very, we, you know, we have established patterns of what this kind of like despotism, this kind of sectarianism looks like. It's yeah. just we're so reluctant to apply them to what we see as being the developed world or our supposed I mean, more it, to be civilized. Honest, it- to be honest, it's an insult to the developing world. I, I have family in India who I speak to on a regular basis, and they, you know, they say there's no way an Indian politician, in you know, Indian politicians who are so corrupt and so authoritarian in so many ways, would be able to get away with the stuff that Trump gets away with on a, on a near daily basis. Because the difference being, I think, in certain parts of the world, they're kind of used to that, and it's it's baked in. I think here the American media is still in shock. They still haven't worked out how to cover a president because this is a U.S. media, Helen, as you know, that's very deferential, very unlike our British press corps. Um, which, you know, for all its faults, knows how to kind of, you know, abuse people in power uh, when they need to be abused, a la the Windrush scandal right now, even the Daily Mail coming out against uh, the British government, the Conservative uh, government. Here, you know, it's a it's a press corps that stands up when the president comes in the room. It's very respectful, deferential. We don't have many Jeremy Paxmans or Andrew Neils uh, throwing vicious curveball questions at administration officials. Um, and therefore, you have a US press corps that traditionally is deferential, very respectful of people in power, very used to you know certain ways of doing business with both parties and then you have this guy who comes along and just blows everything up doesn't follow any norms and isn't punished for it in any way gets elected and still has 40 percent approval ratings 40 percent of u.s voters today are still fine with donald trump after everything well that's a good point to talk about what you wrote your column about this week because something i imagine that that 40 percent would be quite keen on is an escalation of uh, violence in the middle east right they quite like it when a president you know tub thumps um, uh, yes and no. I would say yes and no on that. There's a there's a big debate here. Uh, my column this week is on on Syria and how Trump uh, and how the Trump administration, if not Trump himself, many of the hawks in that administration are basically using Syria as a way to get at Iran. We hear a lot about Russia, Syria's ally Russia, but really the people in the administration are obsessed with Iran. Not just Donald Trump, who wants to tear up the Iran deal, might do that next month on May the 11th when the next deadline comes up, but also people like John Bolton, his new national security advisor, Mike Pompeo, the guy who wants to be Secretary of State, uh, some of the more lower-level officials are all obsessed with Iran. They believe Iran is the biggest threat to world peace, the biggest threat to the United States, uh, and they've wanted regime change in Iran for a while. John Bolton you know, has written that many, many times. And uh, and and the problem is, uh, not the problem, the, the interesting aspect to this discussion is, when he fired those rockets at Syria, he actually got a lot of pushback last week from a lot of his Make America Great Again base, who, you know, a lot of the reasons they voted for him, Helen, uh, in some of these places was because they didn't like the neoconservative way of doing things. You know, they cheered when he attacked George W. Bush on the campaign trail. People thought he was finished, Trump, when he attacked John McCain, when he attacked George W. Bush. But he wasn't because a lot of quote-unquote heartland Republicans were not... um, were not uh, happy about the idea of going to war and you know losing lives over faraway places of which they know little. So they voted for Trump, who said, "I won't get you involved in these foreign wars. I won't nation build. I'm not interested in you know reshaping the world. I want to build bridges at home, not in Iraq." So for a lot of them, they were upset last week when he fired these missiles into Syria. Uh, but he's claiming you know it's a one-off. It's not part of a you know invasion or occupation. He's still going to bring troops home. Iran, of course, if they were to go to war with Iran, that would change the dynamic completely because that would make Iraq, as I say in the piece look like a walk in the park. That would not be a small war or a limited war or a bunch of one-off missiles. Right. So John, John Bolton obviously has been banging this drum for a really long time. But in the point of view of Trump, how much, and this is maybe this is me being 
uh, you know, being unfair on him, although I'm not sure that's a concept that's necessarily possible. But how much of it is it due to the fact that he went to Saudi Arabia? They were all, you know, extremely covered in gold. They gave him things covered in gold. They let him hold that weird gold orb and that they flattered him ex- in and to an extraordinary extent that he kind of feels that that is where America's alliance is even more strongly than presidents have before. It's a good point. I think that definitely exacerbated the situation in the sense that we know he went to Saudi. He loved Saudi. Uh, he loved the way they treated him. They know how to play him. They played him uh, well. And that clearly exacerbated what was already an existing antipathy towards Iran by Trump. Trump signed up for that one neoconservative talking point very early on in his campaign. He went on and on about how he hated the Iran deal. It was the worst deal ever. He would get a better deal. The Iranians were cheating the Americans, etc., etc. And he hired people like General Michael Flynn, good old General Flynn, remember him, who literally in the second week of the administration said we're putting Iran on notice. Uh, He hired people like Sebastian Gorka, who's obsessed with Iran being the font of all radical Islam. Um, And he's hired people like John Bolton, who've written pieces with headlines such as to stop Iran's bomb, bomb Iran. Um, So he's very much, you know, on that wagon, whether he kind of intellectually or ideologically understands it or wants to go down the whole path. Obviously not. This is Donald Trump, a man who's led by his gut, his instincts, his prejudices, and the last person who spoke to him. You know, Trump is the kind of guy who will make a decision based on the last person he spoke to. So if that's, you know, the Saudis via Jared Kushner, if that's the Israelis via Jared Kushner, or if that is... um, you know, John Bolton, his national security advisor, who's sitting down the corridor from him, then yeah, we're all kind of screwed. Okay, so that's not a very good note to end on. So let's end on a slightly happier note, which is your podcast talking to people like Bernie Sanders. Are there people coming up in the Democratic Party that you think these are quite interesting people? Or is it going to be, you know, Bernie Sanders at 79 kind of coming out and having (laughs) another go, uh, you know, in in the next presidential election? I suspect Bernie Sanders will have another go, even at the age of 78, 79. But to be fair to him, he'll be up against a guy who's 75 and way, way unhealthier and more mentally unstable. Uh, I suspect Bernie Sanders will go for it. Uh, If Elizabeth Warren goes for it, she's not exactly a young person either. Um, Are there rising stars in the Democratic Party? There are a few, not really in presidential contenders. Uh, You've got the kind of Kamala Harris of California, uh, up and coming senator, a woman of color. You've got Cory Booker, a senator from New Jersey. Jersey, who, who actually had a very uh, strong uh, Senate hearing recently with Mike Pompeo, where he really challenged Mike Pompeo on his homophobia and Islamophobia, but is seen as very close to Wall Street. You know, the Democratic Party in many ways is like the Labour Party right now in the sense that the base is very left wing. Uh, the Sanders wing has basically uh, taken over the party. Some would say that's a bad thing. I think that's kind of a good thing personally. And therefore, they'll get to decide in the primaries uh, who the candidate is. And therefore, you see a lot of establishment candidates, uh, a lot of centrist candidates like Cory Book and others now shifting to the left, which I think is a good thing. You have a lot of people who are running for president in 2020 or want to run for president in 2020 now saying, yeah, let's have healthcare for all. Yeah, let's have a higher minimum wage. Let's take stronger action on climate change. Uh, let's not bomb every country in the Middle East. And I think Bernie gets credit for that, whether he gets the nomination or not, whether he runs or not. He's definitely shifted the party to the left. Um, and therefore, whether it's he's the candidate or someone else is the candidate, I think you will have an even more progressive agenda than Hillary Clinton had. And Hillary Clinton, for all her sins and Laws had, thanks to Bernie and thanks to you know other factors, uh, the most progressive democratic platform in a long time. Uh, and actually, rem- and don't forget, she beat Donald Trump by three million votes. 
Oh, no, see, well, we're going to end not on a sad bit, but that that's is a, That's not end. a sad note. No, it's not a sad note. It's a positive note because it's a reminder that the majority of people in this country are not Trump supporters. We shouldn't be blinded to that fact. Thank you very much for joining us. That was Mehdi Hassan, who writes the US politics column for The New Statesman and is also the host of a new podcast out of Washington, D.C. called Deconstructed at theintercept.com forward slash podcast forward slash deconstructed. So now it's time for a section we like to call you ask us. Indeed. It's another kind of hostile environment sort of themed one, which is how did the Lib Dems vote on the Immigration Act in 2014? So let's just, you know, obviously I know this, but let's just say for argument's sake that I didn't, what would be my answer? Your answer would be that most Liberal Democrats, as per the coalition agreement, well, after the Quad had hammered out very did vote for the Immigration Act. Now, there were... Can we, for anybody who's who slept through 2010, 2015, the quadrum is Cameron, Osborne, Danny Alexander, and Nick Clegg, right? Yeah, so it was the, basically it was the Lib Dem, fi- the Lib Dem leading finance minister, so originally David Laws, but Danny Alexander for most of the time, their prime minister designate, aka Nick Clegg, the prime minister and the chancellor. Now, this, the weird thing is the quad was not envisaged at the beginning to be the kind of clearinghouse for coalition debates. Cabinet committees were going to be that. And the Lib Dems also had this thing where they had a junior minister whose job was effectively to man-mark the senior conservative minister, right? So so this is all the stuff that comes out when you do reappraisals about how the Lib Dems could have acted. Like, should they have done just confidence and supply? Extremely arguable that I think that probably would have been a better idea for, for certainly for their survival as a party. And should they have demanded entire departments rather than trying to do a kind of Lib Dem sandwich. It sort of feels to me that the the basic problem that it's easy to forget is actually the Lib Dems did quite well for a small party in 2015. Yeah, you know, yeah, their vote halved, but... Was it 58 MPs? God, this all seems so long yeah, ago now. their vote halved. Obviously, the number of MPs went down by rather more than half. But actually, it's quite... The small party does tend to get smashed. However, from a policy perspective, so on the specifics of the of the Immigration Act, this is also... Some people argue one of the, and there's always a kind of, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. But but some people around uh, Clegg, one of their arguments for moving Jeremy Brown from the Home Office, where he moved and the lobby went, oh, but this Jeremy Brown, captain leader legend, um, was that if you look at the period when Theresa May was her most successful under the coalition, they coincide exactly with Jeremy Brown, who did not do a particularly effective job of man-marking her. Now, actually, there are big differences between the 2014 and 2016 Act, you know, not least the use of landlords as, as uh, border agents was massively uh, reduced from May's original plan, and the demands placed on financial institutions to act as agents of the state, again, significantly reduced. I think it comes down to the the problem that the small party always has in a coalition, right? Now, are those concessions better? Is the 2014 Immigration Act better than the 2016 one? Well, yes. However, who is the electoral... Uh, ultimately, vote elections are about gratitude, right? If you're the incumbent government, you hope that there are enough voters who are grateful to you. And if you're the opposition, you hope that there are enough voters who are attracted to the things you are saying they will be grateful to. But there is no caucus of people who are ever going to go, wow, I sure am glad that my landlord can only ask a couple of invasive questions when I'm renting. But yeah, now, obviously, that that policy difference 
is is non-trivial in terms of the lives of the group of people affected. It's also it, sort of fascinating as a policy thing because the whole thing about what, um, not having long tenancies, right, and 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 more protections for renters is about like, oh, it's life's very tough on landlords. Well, you know what's a massive bureaucratic burden on landlords? Having to do all of these checks on the pain of... Actually, I think imprisonment, not even just fines. I would have to go away and check that. But oh, So yeah. the party of landlords, the party of small business people, the party of buy-to-letters, imposed enormously burdensome uh, asks on them. Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, and it, it, but it kind of comes down to the... Yeah, there are many, many... I was going to say the problem. One of the many problems with uh, sort of British politics' current kind of consensus position on immigration is you you cannot have an immigration policy which effectively goes so we're going to let in the immigrants who are going to invent it the next facebook we're going to let in the immigrants who are going to be great heads of mergers and acquisitions at a big bank um because you actually can't tell you know if you are the head of mergers and acquisitions at a big bank in in I'm going to use Spain, even though obviously it doesn't apply because we are, for the moment, still in the single market. But um, if you are the head of a big bank in Europe and your uh, partner is is monolingual, well, your partner then becomes unskilled uh, when they when they move, and so it doesn't really matter how exciting your tier one visa is. You're not going to move somewhere where the immigration status of your teenage children, your wife, yada yada yada, are um are up for grabs. Um, you can only, and you can't have a system which treats um, the Generation Windrush humanely if it doesn't treat people who are guilty humanely as well, right? There's, there's no. Do you want to hear some mad shit from the uh, history of our immigration system, which I found out from uh, the book written by Anna Coot and Teskill in the 1970s, which is a great kind of handbook about for women. It used to be that uh, as a man, you could bring over um, a woman, you could bring over your partner in immigration system. There was, however, in the 70s, no provision of the idea that a woman might bring over her male partner, because there was no idea that you, of course, as a woman, you could be the breadwinner. There was also something that was known informally as the au pair visa, which was a special case category of visa that only really applied to kind of blonde teenage girls that you could bring them over and look after your children i I mean our immigration system has been a shockingly sexist racist institution for quite some time now you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me helen lewis and my co-host stephen bush we're recorded by india bork and produced by caroline crampton Why not sign up to Stephen's newsletter? It's called Morning Call. You can simply search his name and Morning Call on the internet. You will find it. (laughs) 